WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. <laughs> I sh- quite. You're Ooh. listening to Radio, Radio Lab. Lab, the podcast from New York Public Radio. Public Radio WNYC and NPR. Hello, Jad here. This is Radio Lab, the podcast coming to you now with uh, not one of our big hour-long situations, but rather one of those in-betweens that we do uh, between seasons. Our next season is about two months off. And one of the programs that we're going to be presenting is about people who fall in love with science and then fall out of love with science. And in that spirit, we thought we'd play a conversation for you now, which is more on the falling in love side. Robert Crowich, my esteemed co-host, who you will hear in just a moment, recently interviewed maybe one of the greatest scientists alive, really, E.O. Wilson. He is a biologist, he is an entomologist, meaning he studies bugs, he's an author, a world-famous conservationist. He recently started the um, Encyclopedia of Life, which tries to make a list of every single species on the planet. He discovered so many things about uh, how animals communicate, which you'll hear in a moment, particularly ants. And uh, if you heard our Emergence show, you will recognize a bit uh, from that show that repeats in this conversation, but it's really cool to hear the whole conversation without too many edits, which is what we're going to play for you now. So here it is. Here's Robert Crowwood speaking with E.O. Wilson at the 92nd Street Y here in Manhattan. Let's see. Uh, for, for, for starters, I'm just curious. Um, when, did you know, do you remember the moment when you said the word scientist, comma, I want to be one? Not scientist, I guess entomologist, you know. I just wanted to work on You said on entomologist? Yes, bugs. Oh, yes. When I was about eight or nine, I discovered that there were people who actually made their living uh, chasing bugs. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, every kid has a bug period. I was just set now never to grow out of mine. You were right of what you said. And I, down in Alabama, we had... Uh, people who are driving around in green trucks for the Department of Agriculture, and some of them were exterminating insects. And they were made their living by finding and and studying bugs. And I said, well, that's what I want to do. Never mind being a fireman or anything like that. I don't want to do that. Kill bugs. I was was frozen in that uh, that ambition. At the age of seven, five, seven, six, seven? Eight or nine eight or was when I really settled down for with the... <laughs> now, did, did, did science seize you or did science rescue you? Because you were... You, how many schools did you go to before you were the age of 14 or whatever it was? Uh, yeah, it was about uh, 13 or 14 schools and 
11th grade. I skipped one grade. So that made me always the runt of the class, which didn't help. So you were the runt social kid skills. and what? the new kid every time? I was always the new kid in the neighborhood, yeah. So that means what, now, you have a choice here. You could be the class clown or something, or you could go off into the forest and make friends with a worm or something like that. Well, yeah, I guess that's a way of looking at it. Uh, I turned to uh, nature and the woods and so on, and then I discovered that this eccentricity made me a socially acceptable in an odd way. So I had the nickname Bugs when I was uh, <laughs> in my grammar school thing, but then I had a snake period. A snake period. Yeah, and uh, this was in southern Alabama. I guess I was about 15 or 16 by that time, and there were about 40 species of snakes found down there. And in a period of time, about a year, I managed to find them all. I kept a lot of them in the backyard alive, and so I was now known as Snake Wilson. Uh, it wasn't because in this intense football culture, I went out for football at this point uh, at the Bruton High School in Alabama, and I weighed 112 pounds. I was a <laughs> second lightest kid. There are probably uh, a couple at, of snakes heavier than you. Wait, 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 let me finish the story. I, uh, I, <laughs> you're a tough competitor. I'm sorry. Anyway, I, uh, so uh, it turned out, you see, there, was, uh, there were 23 people on the squad, and I was the entire third string. <laughs> but anyway, I got respect in part because uh, I was uh, doing all these strange things, and and uh, Alabamians are really, uh, they're really very tolerant of eccentricity. They kind of like it, you know, the old, the odd aunt that lives up in the attic, and, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah. it was, I got along very well, uh, both mm-hmm. as a, a naturalist, you know, fanatical collector and naturalist at the same, and then in, 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 in high school, too. At any rate, um, uh, so I, at the age of 16, I decided that the time had come to get serious about professional entomology. And so uh, I decided to select a group of insects to study. And I said, flies, they're marvelous, tremendous diversity. And so I would start collecting flies. I wanted to become the world expert on flies. But the year was 1945, and in order to study flies, as many of you understand, you have to have insect pens, special pens to put through the uh, body of the specimens. Hmm. It'll steal. In- yeah, insect pens are, were available at that time only from Czechoslovakia. And the supply had been cut off in the United States. Insect pens were unavailable. So I said, what's my favorite group of insects? You know, I don't have to stick pins through, and that's the ants. So I got started my collection by going down to the drugstore and collecting these uh, little pill bottles. And that, with rubbing alcohol, which is isopropyl alcohol, got mm-hmm. my, my collection started. So I built a large collection of, uh, of ants that I took with me to the University of Arab, Alabama. Could you say and that I was launched? That yeah. but for the but that for lack of pins and for the availability of rubbing alcohol, therefore ants, or was ants always going to be it, and you would have gotten to it by whatever route? Or, or? Uh, I think I eventually would have ended up with ants, but uh, I would have been retarded there. I don't think I would have been able to do serious research uh, until maybe I was eighteen. <laughs> 
Um, now let's get on to the joy of, of, this may not be obvious to a lot of people, the joy of ant studies, because you know, if you think about it, they do seem like somewhat indifferent to anyone who's observing them and, and, and so on. And they, you might not wonder exactly why somebody would get delight out of looking at ants, but I want to take you back to one moment, which I think mm -hmm. is one of my favorites ever. Uh, the question is, how do these little ants communicate with one another? The year is 1953, and you're considering the problem. We know that, at least for us, most of our communication goes because of things we hear or things we see. This does not seem to be the habit of ants. So you have some fire ants, and the question is, you notice that, they, that a scout will go find a piece of food and somehow tell the other ants, look what I found, come here and get the food. How do you figure out how the scout ant tells the other ants that A, there is food and where it is? We had the idea, even back then people did, or biologists, that the ants were somehow laying a trail down, and then they were telling the other ants, go out and follow that trail. Uh, but nobody knew where the trail came from, and they didn't know really how it worked, and they didn't know how ants communicated otherwise. And you're perfectly right. Human beings are really unusual, along with birds. They, we are audiovisual, and... and, uh, and uh, that puts us in a tiny minority of all of the creatures on, on Earth, the, uh, which are primarily chemical in their communication. It wasn't understood or appreciated at that time. Pheromones, you know, many of you have heard the word pheromone. Pheromones are the key to understand the communication of the vast majority of animal species. We didn't know it then. And uh, so uh, one day I set out, I was culturing fire ants then in the laboratory at Harvard, and I said, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. And the way I did it was to uh, dissect these tiny, tiny ants. Very difficult to do, but I dissected them. Now, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. So you're watching the ant going along, and it's yeah. laying its abdomen or some part of its body. It's laying oh, yes. it on the ground. That's right. I, I can see the ant running along, and under uh, magnification, I can see that it's sticking out its sting and dragging the sting. Something's coming out of that sting. Like kind of like a fountain pen or something? Through a little the... bit like that, yeah. yeah. And uh, so uh, I proceed to... Um, believe me, folks, this is the way science goes. I mean, it really is simple-minded. <laughs> it's only later when you're doing the technical paper, you know, and you're producing the mathematical models and you're describing the microanalysis and so on that it looks tough. It's really, this is the way you're thinking when you're doing science. So I said, I'm going to find out what the organs are inside this ant, and I'm going to track down where that stuff is coming from. So what I did was to do anatomy, and then, uh, you know, just dissected. I knew approximately what the different glands were and so on. I mean, you snipped, and, you snipped off the part where the glands were? You sort of went, well, you just dissect open. Oh, you opened it. Uh, okay. Yeah, an ant, uh, and, and just the way you would any animal. Although it's exceedingly difficult when... It's about the size of a grain of salt. That's the tough part. But anyway... <laughs> Aren't your hands going... <laughs> well, yes, your hand is vibrating. And in fact, it was down at the limit. I didn't go to a micro-manipulator, you know, which is when you're doing it with, yeah. with controls. And uh, I did it raw, manually. But it was right at the limit. So the way I did it was I got these uh, very fine needles in... Uh, and uh, because there was this inevitable vibration in your hand, you can see it when you put it in the microscope. It's, everybody has it. You know, it's a little vibration, but highly magnified. It, it, uh, I, it, uh, it allowed me to use a needle like a jackhammer. Like a jackhammer. I could do it if I did it just right, Ooh. you know, and just 
open up the anthem. Anyway, I took out the various organs one after the other, and I made a preparation, and I made an artificial trail. And wait, one, wait, wait a second, make sure I just follow this. So yeah, you've now yeah. got like six organs, and you've got the little smooshed each one of the six organs, and then you're going to take, you. let me just see if I remember this, you're going to take a, hmm, a sharpened birch wood applicator stick. Yes. And then I smeared out one organ after another. No effect. Wait, wait a second. Where are their ants? Are there ants yet? You have brought ants. Oh, I'm, I'm, leading, uh, I'm leading my artificial trails from the colony that I have in the lab. Oh, so there are ants over here. Yeah. You've got your birch stick here, and you're drawing lines right, right. of gut stuff, I it's guess. basically what it is, yeah, just an or different organs. I've washed each one in turn and then smeared it out. And finally, I came to a little finger shaped organ, which we didn't know the function of. It's just a tiny little thing tucked down there, and I smeared that out, and incredible. It wasn't, I didn't have to tell them to follow that trail. They exploded out of the nest running along that thing. And, uh, Does that, that mean, was, like, if you'd taken the stick, could you go, and all the ants would go, yeah, well, I, what I actually, I started playing around with this. It was so effective. Uh, for demonstrations, I would write my name. You know, so the, and a column of uh, 100, 200, 300 ants would come pouring out back and forth, and, and they'd actually write my name in ants. So, uh, well, that was the beginning. I, I, you know, just to show that there is some seriousness to this, uh, that was the beginning. And we were we able to... offended ant lover somewhere in the room. <laughs> all right, now I want to finish this little section because this is my favorite story of all. When you get bad... You get bad. This is, once you begin to figure out how these chemicals and the, furum, and the smells that they give off become communicating devices, you discover that when an ant dies, this doesn't happen to be exactly in that category, when an ant dies, ants not being the smartest creatures around, it just sort of dies and it just sits there, and for the first day or two, all the other ants just don't even notice it. Mm-hmm. And then when it begins to decompose, it begins to give off a smell, and then the first time it gives off a smell, I guess the next ant that passes by goes, whoo, and says, we have a dead ant here. That's right. And he takes the ant and puts it in the dead place. I guess the ant, yeah. dead place. Yeah, I'll tell you yeah. about the experiment, because I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, but first, but let me say that my chemist colleagues and I quickly worked out the chemical code of the ants. We found somewhere, or a good part of it, we found that the ants were communicating somewhere between 10 and with 10 to 20 chemical signals. Uh, they have glands all over their bodies, uh, that the function of which were unknown. And many of these glands produce pheromones, you know, some for, to alarm, some to recruit, some to identify themselves as a member of a caste, and so on. And one of them says, I am dead? Well, the I am dead oh, I'm smell? coming to that, oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, how does an ant, when it dies, how is it identified, as you say? You know, how do the others know? Uh, when an ant dies, then uh, for a while it just lies there. You know, if we, saw, if we saw one of us just lying on the ground like this, we'd probably do something. Maybe not in New York, but I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but usually we'd do something. Because, you know, we're audio, we're audio visual. But in the case of the ants, there's an interesting idea. Be... New York, most ant like city in America. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. At any rate, uh, the. Um, <laughs> So uh, the ant begins to decompose, and I was really going crazy with this. We, we were so successful. I mean, we were making one discovery after another. It was wonderful. And uh, I was going crazy with this. So I said, how does an ant uh, identify a corpse? 
It's got to be in the, uh, the substances that are being produced by decomposition. It's got to be, and, and in those days, we had just hit upon, animal behaviors generally, had just hit upon the idea of sign stimuli, that animals don't grasp a whole lot of stimuli the way we do, you know, and assess the gestalt in a variety of, of, of uh, signals. They usually work out of one substance or a very small number of substances or a site, and then that, that releases their uh, uh, complex behavior. So I was going to find that, what's the corpse substance? It turns out, well, this is how science works across. It turned out that for some reason I never found out the chemist uh, had already identified a large number of decomposition substances in rotting insects. And so with that as my guide, I gathered in pure form on my laboratory shelf a whole variety of them. Uh, and uh, the place for a while smelled like a, a combination between a... Uh, an outhouse and a charnel house. There was, I'll list I, you some of the smells. You have rotten fish smell, feces smell, rancid yeah. body smell. Yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, the uh, uh, fatty acids that you have in body So when odor. people were walking up the corridor at your, in your building, what did they like stay... Uh, I never tried to explain to them. <laughs> uh, but there were, it was, it was a, a very strange-smelling place. Uh, you know, skate hole was uh, one of the... That's, that's the essence of feces. Yes. Well, at any rate, I then started with my, you know, typical experiments. I started daubing dummy ants with tiny, tiny amounts of these different substances and observing, and, and nothing happened until finally I came to one of the substances, oleic acid. Oleic acid. acid. Yes, a fatty acid of a particular kind. Bingo. The ants uh, then picked it up, and the dummy, with nothing but the only signal they had was oleic acid, and they took it and dropped that dummy on the refuse pile. And so I had it. I essentially had it. Now, here's uh, where you get bad. Ah, yeah, that's, that's right. Okay. Well, you know, you get to play around at this point. So I said, what would happen if I put oleic acid on a live ant? <laughs> what happens is that nothing this ant says, if they said anything, you know, nothing the ant does, uh, does any good, because now it is a corpse. And the other ants pick this live kicking ant up, and out it goes, and it's dropped on the refuse pile. So it's a wiggly, obviously alive oh, perfectly ant. healthy. And the other ant's thinking, you're dead, you're yeah, dead, you're, you're dead. dead, all the way to the grave. Goodbye. Goodbye. Uh, <laughs> what happened then was that the ant would uh, proceed to clean itself. Ants are always cleaning themselves. And finally, but if it didn't clean itself enough when it got back, it's picked up and brought out. And <laughs> so finally it's clean enough, and then it can re-enter the realm of the living. Um, I, you have once sometimes described the process of science as you do it as, as a form of storytelling. Mm -hmm. What did you mean by that? Well, I mean, I think as everyone here understands that um, human beings are the storytelling species. We, the way we think is in narrative. You know, we build, we build scenarios forward, whole, and we, when we're making a decision, we're running one scenario after another forward. We're telling a story to ourselves. I'm going to do this, that will, then that will follow, and so-and-so will probably do this, and so on. And, and I will lose that, or I'll gain this, or I will finish that. And, and they tell stories of real past. 
what happened to me. And then, of course, this allows them to make fictional stories. Uh, the scientist uh, tells stories, and he hopes they will be true stories. He's thinking, oh, there's this, there's that. Uh, this creature is doing this. That creature must be detecting this or have evolved in such a way. And then they make, you make a series of stories. And these are called hypotheses. And the fancy term, then, for doing science by storytelling is uh, the method of multiple competing hypotheses. And then you figure, you do the experiments to find out which of the, two, which of the stories is true. That was a conversation between E.O. Wilson and Robert Krulwich, my co-host. And uh, let us know what you thought. Radiolab at WNYC.org is our email address. want to thank the 92nd Street Y for making that available to us. Also want to thank, as always, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the National Science Foundation for making all of this possible. I'm Jad Abumrad. Thanks for listening to this uh, podcast from Radiolab. Hope you enjoyed it. See you in a couple of weeks. I'm Ira Plato, host of Science Friday. For over 30 years, our team has been reporting high-quality news about science, technology, and medicine. News you won't get anywhere else. And now that political news is 24-7, our audience is turning to us to know about the really important stuff in their lives. Cancer, climate change, genetic engineering, childhood diseases. Our sponsors know the value of science and health news. For more sponsorship information, visit sponsorship.wnyc.org.